Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is the 103rd episode of Between the Covers, a conversation with National Book Award finalist Carmen Maria Machado. But before we start, I want to alert you to some new things about the show. Between the Covers is still a listener-supported labor of love. You can still go to patreon.com slash between the covers and support the show. You will see there that you can still get a copy of Jesse Ball's fantastic co-written out-of-print book, Vera and Linus as a Reward. But also, since the beginning of 2018, I'm gathering and offering bonus material that the guests record once the conversation is over. Today, it is Carmen Maria Machado reading two pieces, a story called Miss Laura's School for Esquire Men, and her essay, How I Should Have Known Trump Would Be Elected President. These join Yun Song Kim's prose poems from her upcoming novella and Lainey Zumas's reading of her essay, Voss, Brief, and Light, in the growing bonus material archive. So check it out at patreon.com slash between the covers. I also want to just take a moment in honor of and in memory of Ursula K. Le Guin. She was a guest on the program three times for poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. She was a tireless supporter of community radio. And we were in the final stages together of proofreading the manuscript of a book we were making together when I got the news that she had died. Um, not having really the words to say what she means to me or to be able to describe the importance she had to literature at large, I've been reading a lot of tributes, wonderful tributes, by David Mitchell, by Neil Gaiman, by Margaret Atwood. But if I were to point you to one that I found particularly moving, it was the tribute by a past Between the Covers guest and science fiction luminary in her own right, Joe Walton. So I hope you'll seek out uh, Joe Walton's words and uh, rest in peace and rest in power, Ursula K. Le Guin. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is fiction writer, critic, and essayist Carmen Maria Machado, a graduate of both the Iowa Writers' Workshop and the Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers' Workshop, 
Machado's work has appeared both in The New Yorker, Tin House, Granta, and Agni, as well as Strange Horizons, Lightspeed, Nightmare Magazine, and The Fairy Tale Review. Her work has been anthologized in Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, Grave Predictions, Tales of Mankind's Post-Apocalyptic Dystopian and Disastrous Destiny, Latino Rising, a Latino Anthology of Science Fiction and Fantasy, Best Horror of the Year, Year's Best Weird Fiction, Best Women's Erotica, and Mothership, Tales of Afro-Futurism and Beyond. Machado's work has been nominated for a Nebula and Shirley Jackson Award, a finalist for the Calvino Prize, and longlisted for the Tiptree Award. Carmen Maria Machado is currently the artist-in-residence at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and is here today to talk about one of the most heralded short story collections of 2017, Her Body and Other Parties, out from Grey Wolf Press. Receiving the coveted starred review from both Publishers Weekly and Kirkus, Her Body and Other Parties is the winner of the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize for Best First Book, a finalist for the National Book Award in Fiction, winner of the Bard Fiction Prize, and longlisted for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Fiction. Karen Russell says of her body and other parties, Machado tells ancient tales of eros and female metamorphosis in fantastically new ways, giving literal shape to women's memories and hunger and desire. Roxane Gay adds that these stories vibrate with originality, queerness, sensuality, and the strange. Jeff Vandermeer calls this collection genius, part punk rock, part classical, with stories that are raw and devastating, but also exquisitely plotted and full of delight. And Bennett Sims says of Machado, Machado writes uncanny, creepy, sexy, funny, feminist, magical realist, metafictional, pop cultural, and all of the above stories, and she seems determined never to write the same story twice. Yet for all of its wildly inventive variety, her body and other parties is unified by the one story it keeps finding new ways to tell, how women can survive in worlds that want them to disappear, whether into marriage, motherhood, death, or literally prom dresses. Welcome to Between the Covers, Carmen Maria Machado. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start with a discussion of, of the uncanny, but specifically the uncanny as it relates to gender. Mm. Uh, when you've been asked this question, why women writers seem to turn to the uncanny, and I think of writers, say, like Kelly Link or Helen Oyemi or, or, or Karen Russell, you've given several interesting answers. Uh, one of them is around the value of women's work, that because women, women's work is generally devalued, a realistic story about sexual assault written by a woman is more easily and readily dismissed than a story that takes the same concerns into the world of the fantastic. And you mentioned the last story in your collection, Difficult at Parties, as an example of you doing this and also as the beginning of you writing in this way more generally. So I was hoping you could elaborate about the phenomenon in general around women and realism and then more specifically maybe walk us through a little bit about um, a story like Difficult at Parties and taking real-world concerns and, and um, bringing them into the world of the uncanny. Yeah, so um, there's a really tremendous essay by Freud uh, about the uncanny. I don't know if you're familiar with it, um, that I teach. And he sort of um, takes uh, some stories and kind of 
retroactively sort of tries to like come up with a definition of the uncanny. And one of the things he talks about is the sensation of like if you um, so he's like, you know, if there's a certain number that shows up, you might think nothing of it. Like, you know, if you, you see the number 23 and you're like, whatever. But then if like you check into a hotel and it's number 23, you're the, the number on the door is 23. Then you catch a bus and it's number 23 and the number 23 keeps sort of showing up. Eventually, there's this sense of, you know, what he calls the uncanny. Right. Um, and similarly, he sort of talks about if there's, you know, if you're like walking through a city and you suddenly find yourself back where you started and you don't exactly know how you got there, that also is that sense, this sort of dreamlike sense of the uncanny. Um, and I feel like there's something about <laughs> being a woman and writing as a woman and that sense of I, I know this, I know what is coming, I know, I already recognize this, even though I've never, it's never happened to me exactly this way before, mm. um, that I think is, um, I think it's probably true of a lot of different groups of people, but I think with women especially, it's, there's something about um, our experiences that reflect that, that quality. Um, so yeah, so you know, when I started writing Difficult at Parties, which is a story about a woman who um, is sort of recovering from um, an act of sexual violence, and is sort of struggling to kind of reclaim her body and reclaim her interiority and just trying to have sex with her boyfriend and is not exactly succeeding. Uh, and then um, she decides to watch, to try some porn, see if that will help. And when she watches the porn video, she begins to hear the voices of the actors in the, in the porn film, um, which actually becomes the way that she sort of begins to sort of uh, access her interiority again at the end of the story. Um, and so, yeah, so I, you know, I was in this place in my, in my, career I was you know pretty young I was in grad school and I've been writing a lot of stories that weren't really working um my classmates were lovely and kind and supportive but are basically like this is not great but uh there's certain moments in here that are really sparking and like the moments I always seem to recognize were these moments where like reality was getting punctured a little bit you know and the the story was um changing it was sort of you could tell it was like shifting modes a little bit, even though it was very small. So like I had this truly dreadful story whose plot is completely irrelevant. And I'm gonna you know humiliate myself by explaining it. But there was a scene where death appears to this woman and is like talking to her, and everyone was like, most of the story is pretty forgettable, but that moment is really interesting, and it seems like you're really interested in that sort of you know liminal space. Um, and then I started reading people like Karen Russell, Kelly Link, George Saunders, et cetera, et cetera, Helen Oyeyemi, and I sort of found myself. Um, recognizing like the sheer power of like just taking from what you want from genres and like how there's sort of this this thing that they're able to give you um where you can sort of revisit material that is familiar but in ways that are so strange that like it feels really fresh and really new and really different um and so yeah and then I began to write you know I was I had been thinking about writing a story about sexual violence but I was so worried because I was like I feel like people people will be like, oh, another rape story by some woman. You know what I mean? Like that that yeah. fear and that anxiety. And and so uh, I was like, well, okay, like how do I write? So I just started writing. I mean, I, I didn't sort of know that's what I was going to write about exactly, but I sort of wrote with this woman and I was thinking about, you know, the way she was sort of very cold, it's not the right word, but she just felt very distant and she was having trouble kind of accessing something inside of her. And and then I sort of loved this idea and that I was, in, I was just sort of thinking about like, what do people do when they're trying, trying to recover from sexual violence? And I, I don't know, and I sort of followed this path. And by the time I got to the idea of porn, I was like, what if, I don't know, I just was like, what if she could hear their voices? And then suddenly it was like everything kind of came together. Um, and 
and yeah. And then I wrote a draft of it. And I, I, it was the first time that I felt like as I was writing it, I was really excited. And I was like, I feel like this is like, this is right. This is good. Like I had this really, which I had never had that feeling before. Um, I took it to workshop and people were like, we have some thoughts, but this is like really good. Like you seem like you're doing something here that like, you know, is new and different and your language is different and everything is just really different. Um, and yeah, and it just really, I don't know, it was just this first moment where I felt like it was right. And then after that, I feel like that sort of sensation of like, I just got really sort of used to thinking about what I think of as like a narrative problem, what, you know, like in this way, the way that like stories are problems that need to be solved. Sort of like, how do you tell a story about like, so like with especially heinous, like how you tell a story about sexual violence, um, sort of cultural, like cultural narratives of sexual violence. Like, how does that, how do you do that? Um, or how do you write about like male entitlement, you know, in the husband, in the husband stitch. So like, I, I just sort of was kind of kicking stuff around and, um, and yeah, and it just, it just, it just became the way that I realized that that was how my mind was sort of working. Well, you've written a, a piece in the New Yorker about a writer whose novels were important to you growing mm -hmm. up, uh, those of Lois Duncan, which feels like a sort of a reverse phenomenon of this. In some ways, her life feels like an example. When we're here, we're talking about how can we bring realistic concerns into the uncanny, and yet it feels like for her, she actually believed that her uncanny writing was influencing the real world. Mm. Um, can, can you talk about what, what drew you to her and about um, the blurring of, of fiction and life in her life? Yeah. So Lois Duncan, um, I mean, she's probably most well known for uh, the book I Know What You Did Last Summer, which was made into like a really famous film in like, I think, 97. Um, and, you know, she... Um, I just discovered her books like at the library. I don't even remember why I picked up one of them, but I just devoured them. And, and she wrote like thrillers, sort of supernatural thrillers for young people in like, the 60s and 70s was sort of her heyday. Um, and the book that I read of hers, uh, Gallows Hill, was like a, a new book. And as it turned out, it ended up being the last fiction book that she published. Um, so her the, sort of the tragedy in her life was that when she, in like the late 80s, her daughter was um, her daughter was murdered in a drive-by shooting and the murderer was never found. And so, you know, I was reading a bunch of her work and then at some point I like was looking up her name on the library computer to see if I had missed any books uh, on the shelf. And there was one that was not with the fiction, it was in the nonfiction. And I went and it was this book called Who Killed My Daughter? And it was her sort of talking about um, the various conspiracies around like, you know, who had, who had murdered her daughter. And also she, you know, believed in things like, you know, she she was so like the, the the cover of like the British edition of one of her books, the 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 face there's a there was a man's face on it and it looked like a suspect drawing. So she became sort of convinced that there was this sort of larger like sort of supernatural um, thing kind of at work. And I, I didn't really know what to make. And I was young. I mean, I was I was I God, I must have been. 11, 12. And so I like didn't understand how this book was in the nonfiction section. I didn't fully understand, you know, and when I realized later what I was seeing was like this, just this grief on like raw, this raw grief on display, which was like really alarming. And by, I don't think I fully understood like why it was so alarming, but I devoured this book and there's actually, there's also a sequel that came out a few years ago. I um, mean, she, and yeah, and she passed away um, very recently. And I think very suddenly, um, but yeah, but her work was really interesting to me because, you know, it was all about women and girls in peril. And it, it was like, it was like, she, that was all, she, it was like, she had to write about that. You know, like that was a theme that sort of she returned to both before her daughter's death and, and after. Um, and 
Yeah, I, I don't know. And I, I don't know. I just, I mean, I feel like, in, yeah, in some ways, it's like she was dealing with these like very real sort of situations, um, but then with this sort of like supernatural sort of thriller element. And I, yeah, and I think it was only when sort of writing that essay, you know, when she died, I found myself very, um, I was surprisingly devastated by her death. Like I, I was not expecting that. I, uh, I got very emotional about it. And then I wrote this essay and, and I was really surprised by sort of when I was looking back over her books and, you know, I was, it was funny. I was like writing it and I was sitting at my desk with like this big pile of like all her, which I still have, like all the books that I had read as a kid that I, cause eventually I, I stopped checking on the library. I just bought, I just bought everyone. So I had this like giant, you know, pile next to me and I was kind of going through them and I was like really just like moved kind of all over again. And I was like, these books really hold up and also like, you know, her writing is really solid and like, you know, these stories are so eerie and beautiful and I just really, really loved her work. Um, sorry, I like forgot what you asked me oh, about yeah. the initial question. No, uh, no, you did great. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, so another one of your answers around women and the uncanny is also that being a woman is inherently uncanny. And you've said your your humanity is liminal your body is forfeit, your mind is doubted as a matter of course, you exist in the periphery. And that reminds me, this idea of one's mind is doubted as a matter of course, reminds me of one of my favorite analysis of your work, a review in, in Fiction Unbound by Theodore McCombs, where he both contextualizes the writing, historically speaking, and also suggests that the phenomenon of gaslighting is one lens through which you can read this whole collection. So I'm going to read a little excerpt, and then I just want to hear your, your yeah. thoughts on it. Um, he says, Gothic literature is most often associated with its haunted spaces, the rotting castles, strange nocturnal noises in the next room, the draft of cold air that seems to come from nowhere, but in its purest form, in its first masterpieces like Anne Radcliffe's Mysteries of Udolpho, or later revisions like Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, the Gothic is dominated by the women within those spaces experiencing and resisting real peril while never being entirely believed, not even by the male hero. It's the nightmare of patriarchy, before that concept was developed or mapped, an intuition that something is terribly wrong and dangerous without the confidence to scream for help. It's an atmosphere that Machado's stories draw upon and reassert in a contemporary world against a contemporary dread, because despite social changes since the 18th century, women still find themselves threatened and gaslighted caught in a crazy-making duality of progress and regress, power and powerlessness, liberation and violence. I'd forgotten about that quote, but I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. But the way it's placing you in a tradition yeah. is, is, is fascinating. And I wondered, I wondered if that was, if there was a revelation in reading that, mirror, that mirroring back to you or yeah. where that was the place that you, you had oriented yourself in. Yeah, you know, it's funny because um, the first time I, I remember reading, I have this really clear memory of reading Jane Eyre. It was on some summer reading list when I was a kid. Um, I must have been going into middle school, maybe going into high school. Um, and I remember, like, it was summer. I took it out of the library. I was, like, sitting on the front porch, like, eating a popsicle and, like, reading Jane Eyre and was, like, so freaked out by it. Um, and again, like, and it's sort of in that way where it's like, you know, it's sort of this almost like pre-verbal, like people didn't really have the sort of like critical language or architecture to talk about things like patriarchy, but like it was reflecting this, this quality. Right. Um, and I've always been really interested in physical spaces. Like that is a, like when I wrote The Resident, which I'd argue is probably the most Gothic story, uh, in that collection, um, 
you know, I was thinking both a lot about the physicality of the space, in that case, the space of the writing residency, and also like a place where the past kind of exists for this protagonist, and also the, a past exists for the space. Um, and sort of her trying to come to terms with like questions about like, which questions are questions that I have about, you know, mental illness, uh, gender, sexuality, um, narratives about those things, like what our sort of priorities should be as artists. Um, that was just like a really important to sort of have those things kind of together. And it just made sense to be for that to be happening, like at this writer's residency. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think so I wrote an essay for uh, Medium like, I guess that was right at the end of 2017 about gaslighting. Um, I was thinking a lot about it in terms, I was asked to write an essay about a word that defined 2017. And I was like, oh, I know exactly the word. <laughs> the only word that I can think of uh, to define it would be right this ga gaslit or gaslighting. Um, and I sort of was rewatch, I rewatched Gaslight, the, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Ingrid Bergman version of Gaslight to sort of prepare for the essay and to write it. And um, there's something about and I, you know, when in that essay, I was actually pretty pessimistic because the thing I kept returning to was like, you know, the only reason she escaped from that situation is because there was like this, you know, uh, enterprising, you know, young detective who was sort of like following her around and trying to like figure out what was going on. And if, if not for him, I mean, she probably would have just, that would have just continued, right? She would have just died that way. Um, sort of trapped in this like prison of her own mind that like her, this man had sort of put her in, um, and I, so I was like, I don't know what happens to us. Like, how do we get out of this sort of like cultural gaslighting that like, you know, uh, about women? And I and I feel like things are I mean, things are always bad. They're particularly bad right now. And I feel like, you know, we we never quite I keep saying this is very I feel like it's kind of controversial. But like, I feel like we regardless of how you feel about Hillary Clinton as a candidate, I feel like we never had like a national conversation about the way sexism played out in the election. And I think it was incredibly traumatic for women. And I think we didn't even I don't think we even fully come to terms with like how traumatic it was. We never had like a deep like a processing where we were like, what was that? You know, um, and because it, because we also obviously we automatically went into panic mode, uh, you know, like Trump is president. Oh, my God. You know, and so I feel like that is like the ultimate, that's like part of that gaslighting, right? Where it's just like, oh, you saw like a powerful, successful, rich, wealthy white woman just get like destroyed by like this incompetent, you know, this just, the, you know, and, and, all, and it, I think what's really interesting about it is that it was all very like obvious and boorish. Like it was so, it was such, it was sexism that was so obvious that like if you put it in a short story, someone would be like, take that out, it's too obvious. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that's what was the most alarming about it was it wasn't subtle at all. And, and, we, and we just sort of saw this woman with like all the power and privilege you can possibly imagine except for her gender. And she still like had to go through the ringer and then ultimately like, you know, lose. And people are still mad at her still <laughs> you know people are constantly like well let's talk about Hillary clinton and it's like oh my god like she's not president you know um and i and i feel like i feel like there's something about that that's really um horrifying and extraordinary but also just reflects like how i don't think we're able to kind of get out of this cycle i think we're all sort of trapped in this sort of cultural gaslighting sort of gothic moment and and as so i feel like of course my work reflects that because i feel like that's just i'm i'm caught up in that just like everybody else yeah um, well, it's interesting because you make this what I would call a brilliant move at the beginning of the book that sort of traps the reader in a certain superstructure um, that puts us in a position of being gaslit by this unspecified narrator. Um, so the book opens with the story, The Husband Stitch, and immediately as we open the book and begin the story, we are addressed in a parenthetical by this unspecified narrator who tells us what voices we should assume 
when we read each of the characters as we read the story out loud. So the, the book immediately is announcing its strangeness, its uncanniness, it's breaking the fourth wall before the fourth wall has even been established. But it's also instructing us to read characters in this very uh, culturally gendered way. Uh, the father's voice should be kind and booming, the son's gentle, the female protagonist's voice should be high-pitched and forgettable, and all the other women in the story should be read in the same way, interchangeably. So from the get-go, to enter the book, we are sort of complicit in a sexist superstructure. And simply by entering the world, we, we participate in rules that we, we didn't create. So there, there are many times in the book I feel like you break the fourth wall, um, and we're aware of the maker of the story and of the teller of the story um, and of the system of the story. And I was wondering if you were drawn to this for that effect, for this effect of um, where am I standing and how by standing there am I participating in something unwittingly? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, yeah. And I, and I do feel also as if I, I feel like there, there's also this sort of quality of it where we have to also acknowledge like our own complicity. I mean, I mean, I don't think enough is not said about like internalized sexism, right? So like in my own life, like I have found myself thinking things like I wish I could be this or I wish I could do this or and it's all sort of playing into this like idea about like who is powerful and who is smart and who, you know, um, and it comes from that internalized sexism, right? And I think um, and I, I so I think I yeah, I sort of like I sort of like the idea of writing a, a, a story or a project where the reader is sort of complicit in that way as, as we all are. Right. And I always, I always love a story that, I mean, when I'm reading, I love a story that like tangles me up in it in that way. Um, where like the, my, my sort of role as the reader is, is I'm trying to think of the way to say it. <laughs> yeah. Like, like just, I guess just me being tangled up in it as a reader. And yeah. so I, I kind of like the idea of tangling up my readers as well. Yeah. Well, another thing that I really love about the opening, the opening story, the husband stitch is the way it, it foregrounds the way stories inform lives, um, the way we are born into stories, stories of marriage, stories of desire, stories of happy families, stories of gender roles. All these stories are usually sort of in the background. We, they're sort of the white noise, the fabric of the culture that we live in. But here we are told in this story, story after story, um, that might have in, at first feel tangential to the primary narrative, but they accumulate in a way that they feel like they become the foundation of the story. So I was hoping you could read two of them, and then we could talk about the story within the story effect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so uh, the American Girl in Paris and oh, the yeah. liver story, so 18 and 19 and 23 and 24. Of all the stories I know about mothers, this one is the most real. A young American girl is visiting Paris with her mother when the woman begins to feel ill. They decide to check into a hotel for a few days so the mother can rest, and the daughter calls for a doctor to assess her. After a brief examination, the doctor tells the daughter that all her mother needs is some medicine. He takes the daughter to a taxi, gives the driver instructions in French, and explains to the girl that the driver will take her to his residence, where his wife will give her the appropriate remedy. They drive and drive for a very long time, and when the girl arrives, she is frustrated by the unbearable slowness of the doctor's wife, who meticulously assembles the pills from powder. When she gets back into the taxi, the driver meanders down the streets, sometimes doubling back over the same avenue. Frustrated, the girl gets out of the taxi to return to the hotel on foot. 
When she finally arrives, the hotel clerk tells her that, she is, that he has never seen her before. When she runs up to the room where her mother had been resting, she finds the walls a different color, the furnishings different than her memory, and her mother nowhere in sight. There are many endings to this story. In one of them, the girl is gloriously persistent and certain, renting a room nearby and staking out the hotel, eventually seducing a young man who works in the laundry and discovering the truth that her mother had died of a highly contagious and fatal disease, departing this plane shortly after the daughter was sent from the hotel by the doctor. To avoid a citywide panic, the staff removed and buried her body, repainted and refurnished the room, and bribed all involved to deny they had ever met the pair. In another version of this story, the girl wanders the streets of Paris for years, believing she is mad, that she invented her mother and her life with her mother in her own diseased mind. The daughter stumbles from hotel to hotel, confused and grieving, though for whom she cannot say. Each time she is ejected from another posh lobby, she weeps for something lost. Her mother is dead, and she does not know it. She won't know it until she, herself, is also dead, assuming you believe in paradise. I don't need to tell you the moral of this story. I think you already know what it is. One of my favorite stories is about an old woman and her husband, a man mean as Mondays, who scared her with the violence of his temper and the shifting nature of his whims. She was only able to keep him satisfied with her cooking, to which he was a complete captive. One day he bought her a fat liver to cook for him, and she did, using herbs and broth. But the smell of her own artistry soon overtook her, and a few nibbles became a few bites, and soon the liver was gone. She had no money with which to purchase a second one, and she was terrified of her husband's reaction so she discovered that his meal was gone. So she crept to a church next door, where a woman had been recently laid to rest. She approached the shrouded figure, and then cut into it with a pair of kitchen shears, and stole the liver from her corpse. That night, the woman's husband dabbed his lips with a napkin, and declared the meal the finest he'd ever eaten. When they went to sleep, the old woman heard the front door open, and a thin wail wafted through the rooms. Who has my liver? Who has my liver? The old woman could hear the voice coming closer and closer to the bedroom. There was a hush as the door swung open. The dead woman posed the query again. The old woman flung the blanket off her husband. He has it, she declared triumphantly. Then she saw the face of the dead woman and recognized her own mouth and eyes. She looked down at her abdomen, remembering now how she carved into her own belly. She bled freely there in the bed, whispering something over and over as she died, something you and I will never be privy to. Next to her, as the blood seeped into the very heart of the mattress, her husband slumbered on. That may not be the version of the story you're familiar with, but I assure you it's the one you need to know. We've been listening to Carmen Maria Machado read from her body and other parties. So tell us a little bit about the stories within the stories. The way I read it is is slightly like the the gaslighting phenomenon in the sense, do we even realize what stories we're, we're walking around yeah. in, at just being born into, mm-hmm. essentially? But what, what are you doing here with these stories? Right. So I think I think it's a couple of things. I, I'm really interested. I mean, I feel like, you know, urban legends, sort of like fairy tales, reflect... Um, cultural ideas, cultural anxieties. Um, and these stories, um, even the original versions of the stories, not the ones that I, I rewrote, um, you know, reflect certain fears. So the, 
woman with the liver, this idea that like a woman um, is so afraid of her husband that she will like go steal the liver from a corpse rather than tell him that um, it doesn't exist or that she, you know, that it's gone or the fact that, um, you know, that she was not even allowed to like eat what she had made. Um, that's like a very, you know, simple sort of like idea that um, is obviously like part of it, you know, even though it's not really part of the, the horror of like the ending, which is, you know, the, the woman sort of crying out and um, yeah. So, so that's part of it certainly. And I think this idea that we don't really know what stories we're in. And I, I feel like there's something about, um, you know, the protagonist of this story it tells a lot of these stories, but she herself is also in an urban legend, right? Or this, this sort of this folktale about the, one with the ribbon around her neck and doesn't seem to necessarily know. She knows what will happen if the ribbon comes off, but she doesn't know that she is going to die. You know, she doesn't realize that that's the ending of the story. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like we we do have this sort of blindness about the narratives that we are engaged in at, at all moments. And we are, right? Like, we're always sort of engaging in some sort of cultural narrative. And um, it's really hard to sort of back up a little bit and be like, what am I, like, what am I doing right now? Like, what am I playing into? Um and so, yeah, I just, I feel like these sort of like stories, and I also just always love like a nested narrative. I feel like that's a style that I've always really loved. And I feel mm -hmm. like the way that characters tell stories tell us a lot about the characters themselves, you know? And so well, just, there was an yeah. interesting take on, on your collection by Nathan Goldman, uh, where he talked about, or he, he contextualized your book around the idea of the intertextuality of fairy tales in mm -hmm. general. So how how fairy tales are often about the act of storytelling insofar as they are conspicuously in conversation with the stories that precede them. Mm -hmm. So uh, they foreground much like the husband stitch does the stories that inform them mm -hmm. rather than um, acting like they come out of a moment of individual genius. Mm -hmm. Does that, does that ring true to you at all? Oh yeah. I, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's funny, like when I, the reason I wrote this story is because when I was a kid, I was a Girl Scout and I, I did a lot of like campfire stories and I had read, you know, the Alvin Schwartz, uh, books, the scary stories to tell in the dark and also, uh, in a dark, dark room, which is where the ribbon story comes from. And when I sort of returned to it as an adult, I mean, I literally, the thought process, like the reason I thought of it was I was like talking to some friends about those book stories. And I was like, you know, the one that always really fucks me up. The one that really haunts me is the, the green ribbon. And everyone else sort of remember. They were like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that one." Um, and everyone else also had a different response. Like I had a friend who there's there's a story from the Scary Stories book, and he was like, "Oh, this one with the Wendigo," and there's like this scene where like the footprints are like getting longer, and like that was the one that like was sort of seared into his mind, you know. And so I feel like. Um, you know, having that sense of like what stories, like for some reason when I was younger, the story with the ribbon, even before, again, before I had that language for patriarchy, before I had this sort of language for like the architecture of power, this this very simple story about like a woman whose husband would never stop asking her about the ribbon and always wanted to untie the ribbon and, and that she herself eventually was like, okay, fine, do it. Um, something that really haunted me and upset me even mm. before I you had any sense of like what larger sort of power structures that was reflecting um your dedication at the beginning uh, um it seems to be a counterbalance to this idea of how stories can be harmful because you you dedicate the book to your grandfather and mm -hmm. to the stories that he told you mm -hmm. can you can you talk a little bit about what was captivating about your grandfather's storytelling and and what of it you see appearing in your own yeah so my grandfather um is, is from cuba and until a few years ago, I had never been, um, I, you know, I wasn't able to go for uh, all the obvious reasons. And, um, he would sort of tell us these stories about Cuba and it was like stories, stories that, um, 
and also stories about like his life that also when he came to the United States and he was in the Korean War. I mean, he he tells a lot of stories, but um, and there was always this sort of this funny like. He, it was like these sort of dark stories, really beautifully and very humorously told. So like there was this one that I loved that he, I would ask him to tell over and over. And it basically was a story about how he had this pet rooster. I can't remember the rooster's name. He used to, I used to know it. Um, and uh, one day and he was like eating soup and was like, where's my rooster? And her mom was like, well, <laughs> you're eating your rooster. <laughs> like your, your pet rooster's in the soup. Um, and, he, you know, he would tell that story humorously right even though like undoubtedly that's like a traumatic <laughs> incredibly traumatic thing for a child to hear um and then it was really interesting when i went to cuba with my brother we were sort of walking around santa clara where he's from and like we were seeing these places that like settings of like you know the settings of the stories that we had heard for so long and um and so yeah so i feel like you know his stories always had this sort of um sort of arch sense of humor while also talking about really dark uh, really dark things, you know, and he, he went from Cuba to Tennessee and, you know, he was like a dark skinned, um, you know, Spanish speaking, uh, Cuban immigrant in Tennessee in like 1950 something. And, you know, experienced like horrific, like racism and, but he would tell these stories in these really funny ways where he was sort of acknowledging the darkness while also sort of, um, giving the stories this kind of levity and, and I, I think that that, you know, it's funny because people will ask me sort of like, you know, you're, you, the stories have a lot of humor in them, even though they're like about really dark topics. And it's like, yeah, I feel like that's kind of the only way to do it. And I, I definitely credit, again, that sort of that sensibility uh, that I think he just, I mean, I don't, and I don't think it was like, it wasn't conscious. Like it wasn't like, he's like, here's how you tell a good story. Like I just sort of understood that that was part of it, that like life was sort of this, like these dark, horrific things. And it also was funny. It was funny how dark things were. Um... And I think that sort of sensibility really um, just kind of just sort of was like in me. Uh, I was actually um, I was doing the, the, another interview before this, and I was telling a story about how I had written the story as a child um, called "The Biggest Turkey Can't Find the Farm," and the basic plot of it was that like this turkey is lost and trying to get home, and he's going to those different places, and he's never where he's supposed to be, and then finally he gets to the farm, and he says is this it? Yay. Like I'm home. And then the last page was like a roasted turkey on a plate. And it said like, I wish I did not come here. Oh no. And my parents were like, what is this thing you wrote? You know? And I, I mean, clearly I had sort of, I'd gotten that sort of like, since like the ironic, the sort of ironic turn, you know, at the end and like the sort of the darkness and the humor of that, um, the pathos <laughs> of that sort of scenario, you know, when I was like six or something, you know, I was like really, really young, but I had just sort of like figured that out. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that sort of comes from that. So, yeah, my grandfather, um, and, you know, now, you know, he's still alive, but um, he has pretty se severe dementia. And the only real thing, you know, we visit him, like my brother and I will sit there and be like, tell us a story about this. And like when he sort of, he'll sort of start, start to tell it and then he'll sort of stop. We'll be like, well, didn't, you know, didn't this happen next? And because, you know, at this point, they're just like second nature to us and we just sort of know them. Wow. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, it seemed I had sort of had to dedicate the book to him. It felt wrong not to. Yeah. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Carmen Maria Machado, the author of Her Body and Other Parties from Grey Wolf Press. Well, to, to pivot to something else that comes up in a lot of your interviews, you mentioned a book by Joanna Russ called How to Suppress Women's Writing. I'd like to hear about it a little bit, if you don't mind. But before we do, I wanted to ask a, a question, a larger question, about the erasure of women's writing and, and in the canon, because this will be the third time 
in seven years that I have this conversation. And the other two times were with Joe Walton and with Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm. And they're both science fiction fantasy writers. And so are you, as well as you're in both worlds, the mm-hmm. science fiction fantasy and the, the literary world, if those are, it can be considered separate. Um, but I wondered if that was coincidence in your mind. I wondered or whether that was a sign of, um, or you thought that might be a sign of a, a heightened consciousness or curation or activism around what is in and not in the canon in, in the sci-fi fantasy world versus the non-sci-fi fantasy world? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, certainly the science fiction and fantasy world and the literary world, they actually are distinctive communities, regardless of how you feel about like the work itself and the writing and how you identify like certain genres. But yeah, there definitely are these like, sort of distinct, almost like tracks, I guess you would call them. Um, and yeah, I mean, the Joanna Russ, so, so yeah, so How's the Press Woman's Writing, which is a book... I don't, I'm actually not surely, I don't fully understand what it's, it's sort of in and out of print at the same time. I think it's like a print on demand. I think it's like University of Texas Press or something. Um, And it it should be taught in literally every literature class ever because it is, it's this really like fundamental. So basically Joanna Ross is saying like, it's it's a sort of this like tongue in cheek almost like guide like here's how you, how you keep women out of the, (laughs) out of the larger narrative. Um, And so it's sort of like. Uh, she didn't write it is like one of the sort of steps of the book. So it's like, you know, this wasn't really written by this person. You know, they assign it to like a male author or she did write it, but it wasn't her. So it was like it was her hysteria. It was her f- femaleness. Like it wasn't like her mind. It was, you know, or or she did write it. But um, look what she wrote about. She wrote about the home. She wrote about domestic matters, you know, so it's, it's not important. It's not real literature, um, et cetera. And so she sort of goes through this, this sort of multi-step process um, and then and is also like it's an exhaustively referenced book. So there's just like footnotes and and notes and just like, you know, she sort of, just, it, you know, she was a really brilliant critic. And like at, at the, from when the book was she, I mean, she's she's not alive anymore, but um, it was, this, you know, as of when she had written it, it was like this really exhaustively sort of research and, and um cited book um yeah so I don't really know I feel like I'm not I'm I don't even know if it's even about like the literary versus the genre world I just think that generally speaking and there are always exceptions right there's always of course there are like you know you can name like famous examples of like highly read like women writers but um I do feel like there's this you know, what we consider sort of serious literature or what we consider, um, you know, who gets to write about things like marriages or, you know, who gets to, and like how that, that work is sort of treated, um, how, what book covers look like, you know, uh, is like a really basic, you know, it's funny. There was this, um, tremendous novel I just read by, from the seventies, uh, by Anne River Seddon's called The House Next Door. Um, I had read it because Stephen King had recommended it as like one of his favorite haunted house novels. And I'm on like a haunted house kick right now. So I, I picked it up and it was amazing. It was terrifying. I was just, I read it in one sitting. What's it called again? The House Next Door. Okay. Um, yeah, like written, I think it was like the early seventies. And, and what's amazing is I had, I, you know, picked up a copy I found, but like the cover, it's like this like kind of pastel, it looks like a, you know, it just looks like like not even the, you would never be even under, begin to realize what kind of book it was by looking at the cover, which is not to say that covers that cover isn't bad, it just doesn't, it doesn't match what's in it, but it does match a certain, you know, she's like the Southern writer, like there's this, you know, it's like she's a woman, so she must have this like very sweet pastel sort of cover that in no way belies what's like inside of the book. Um, and, you know, so stuff like, so that those are all, you know, sort of, um, I, I feel like this is all sort of ways in which, 
I don't know. And it's funny because it's like women, women are tremendous readers and women like do write a lot. But we yeah, we just like we don't want to take them seriously. And, you know, the way we think about like awards and whose work is sort of worth that kind of critical attention. I, I think it's really it's really awful and um, very frustrating. And like I had written about it recently in electric literature because I, I had noticed um, I had read the new Shirley Jackson biography that came out. Uh, I guess it was like a little bit over a year ago at this point. Um, and I had observed that on the back of the bu- on the back of the book, Neil Gaiman had blurbed the biography and he had referenced the Joanna Russ book kind of, but like hadn't cited it and also had sort of bastardized the phrase. So like it, it, it I don't remember, ex- I don't have it in front of me. I don't remember exactly what the quote was, but like he basically, and it was weird because it was like, you know, even though he was like praising this book, he was praising sort of like the fact that this book was like, you know, is trying to elevate Shirley Jackson where she belongs in the American canon because she's like one of our sort of finest like 20th century writers. Even in that process, he sort of like yanks Joanna Russ out of that sort of, you know, um, that sort of like referential sort of process. Um, So so like if I understand correctly, he's sort of breaking a link. Exactly, exactly. While while also doing something um, that's praiseworthy. So it's complicated. Right, exactly. And, you know, I felt... Uh, you know, and I mean, obviously, like, you know, it's wonderful that Neil Gaiman, like, gave this book that kind of attention. It's really lovely. But, yeah, I, I found that I was really disturbed by it, um, and I, which is why I wrote, the, I wrote this essay for Electric Literature about, about – and I was – and then I sort of revisited, you know, the Joanna Russ book and was thinking about, um, like, the fact that that book should be taught in every literature class. And I, I, a lot of people do not know it even exists, yeah. right? And, and then it's, like, a crime. It's, like, this, like, fundamental, critical book about, like, how we read – women's writing and like what we do to women writers and it, the fact that like that book is not you know, on every shelf and uh, in every school and is being taught constantly is just like a is an absolute crime and that made what he did feel even more egregious even if it was you know again totally unintentional and that's sort of what made it so awful was it wasn't as if he was like you know there was like this it wasn't like a you know uh snidely whiplash right or is that his name like twirling his mustache and like <laughs> tying a damn you know it was like right. it was like it was just an act of sort of carelessness but honestly like that's all it takes Right. Yeah. To break a link is an act of carelessness. Well, that's interesting about the links and this. And you also mentioned the importance of Russ's uh, endnotes and citations in the book, because there's this interesting piece on tour by Britt Mondello oh, about yeah. the endnotes. Which I reference in the essay. It's, yeah. it's tremendous. It's a um, really, really good About essay. the history, creating history through the act of listing. And she says, the history of women writers as friends, as colleagues, as individuals, as a group is written on sand. Each generation feels that they're the first. Feminist history is in a state of perpetual erasure, but Russ creates a history and a set of possibilities not written in sand. And what's interesting about that to me, other than in and of itself, is this this issue of, of listing creating links, because you also are a lover of lists <laughs> <laughs> and, and, of using, and, of, and of using lists as a narrative structure. Mm-hmm. Um, this is true in your story, Inventory, even more so in especially heinous 272 views of Law and Order SVU, which is organized as consecutive TV listings reimagining episodes. But it's also true in a lot of essays and stories not in the collection. How to almost probably not die of rabies, how I should have known Trump would be elected president, and selected objects from the estate sale of Mercedes Pilar Machado. So, um, what, how, and well, how are lists operating for you if that can be answered? And what is drawing you in the first place to lists? 
I feel like lists for me are sort of that thing where, you know, every writer has a thing that's both their greatest weakness and their greatest strength at the same time. And I feel like lists are that for me and that I love them. And some people really, um, I feel like I, I see a lot of people being like, can't she just write a thing without a list? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I don't know. I've always found lists to be really fascinating because I think of them as sort of like um, like a scatter plot graph, right? Where like you're having to have, you have these points of data and a narrative is like the sort of the the line. I, this is like as much math as I can remember from like from like school, but like you know, it's like there's like a best fit line that kind of goes in between that reflects the sort of the, the averaging of all these like data points, um, and that's like sort of the narrative or like the sort of the heart of the story. And so like that was sort of when I was thinking about the structure of especially heinous, um, which is that, but in a ma on a massive scale, right? Because all these lists, you know, the lists are, and also like in Mothers is a huge list, right? Um, with the in the kitchen, um, in the house that she sort of imagined. Like I use them a lot. Um, but obviously, especially heinous is like that times a thousand, right? Cause it's so long. Um, but yeah, so I, I like to sort of think about like how objects and ideas can sort of serve as these um, little like, or it's like a constellation, right? Where it's like, there's just a little points of data and then our sort of understanding of like an emotional state or our understanding of the way a story should be read is sort of that best fit line that goes through all those pieces of information. Um, and sometimes it's, a, it's like a plot and sometimes it's a little more emotional than that where it's like, you know, if, if I, like, I, I mean, this is like a very obvious example, but like whenever I talk about lists with my students, I'll say, okay, so like here's a shopping list and I'll start to like make a shopping list on the board. And first it's like tissues, ice cream, you know, uh, rent, uh, some romantic comedy. And I'm like, what is, th what is this list? And they're like, oh, someone got broken up with. And it's like, right, okay, right, simple. And then I'm like, okay, then I add like shotgun, shovel, uh, lie, tarp. And I'm like, now what is the story? They're like, oh, someone broke up with them and they were about to go like murder them. Right. And so, yeah. so like the story is just changing. And that's again, like a very obvious and very like using a lot of stereotypes. Right. But still it's like, it's like you can sort of see the story sort of evolving and moving through those data points. Um, and so, yeah, so I just feel like it's just a form that for me, it feels very natural. I like it. Um, I guess I could see, I could definitely see somebody arguing that it's a crutch that I fall back on. Like it's a thing that I just, I, I know I can do it well. So I just like to, I like to do it when I don't know what else to do, which I think is a very fair, would be a very fair critique. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just, I don't really know where it came from. Like, I don't know like what the sort of, like what the first thing I did was that that I felt that way about it, but, um, yeah. but I like it. I don't know. Well, I want to ask you it in relationship to photography, cause mm -hmm. you studied photography as mm -hmm. an undergraduate mm -hmm. and there's something that you said about photography that makes me feel like it applies to your list stories. So let me see if you think the same. So you said, I like to use the real to access the unreal, the foreground as a frame for the background and the unreal to access the real, the background as a frame for the foreground. And this feels true like in a story like Inventory, where on the surface we're getting a list of, of sexual encounters. But over the course of the character's life, it feels like uh, in the background we're getting the world building and we're realizing what's really going on. Mm -hmm. So um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about maybe that, the, fa the background foregrounding of world building yeah. when presenting a list? <laughs> Yeah. So it's funny because I, I, you know, I studied still photography. I didn't really study. F I took some film classes, but that was not my focus. Um, in retrospect, if I could like go back to, you know, you're like, if I could go back to college, here's what I would study. I would have studied film because I feel like what really interests me about, I'm really interested in like various mediums, how each of them sort of can sort of do certain things. So like fiction can do things that film can't do, but film can do things that photography can't do. You know, there's like, there's like different sort of strengths to each form. Um, 
And with with cinema, like I, I, I my one of my favorite movies in the world is Children of Men, um, and every time I rewatch that movie and I've watched it, I couldn't even tell you how many times at this point, I see new stuff in the background. And it's a story where like you're seeing this very immediate sort of thing right in front of you. But if you sort of just shift your own, almost like imagine like a camera, like changing depth of field, like if you, if you shift your focus a little bit, you can see all the other stuff happening in the background. And it's actually telling you a ton about both like literally what's sort of happening in this world. And also like this sort of really intense, like emotional state of like this sort of near future state of chaos. Right. Um, and I'm also really interested in the fact that in film, like you can, like something can be happening on one side of the screen, but if you just look at a different part of the screen, other things are happening that you may or may not be paying attention to. And unlike with fiction, you can choose to sort of move your focus in that way, right? Because like fiction, it's like you're just reading the words on the page um, in traditionally structured fiction in any case. But like with a, with a movie, you can sort of just be like, so like a, a game I play with myself. So I really hate the Big Bang Theory. It's infuriating to me. Everyone in my family loves it. So I sort of often find myself in front of a television where that show is playing and I'm like real mad about it. So the <laughs> game that I play with myself to just like keep myself occupied and not like fly into a horrible rage is um, whenever somebody's talking on the screen, I'll just look at the other actors who are not speaking in the scene or who are like not speaking at that moment because their faces are always really funny because their faces are really relaxed because they're not they're not getting ready to speak. So they're just sort of like, looking in weird places or there's just sort of like they're just in this like weird slack like non-performing performing state because they're not in they're not having the conversation at that moment and i'm always sort of and it's like that's not i'm not supposed to look at that like, i'm supposed to be looking at this like other conversation that's happening but there's something really fascinating about like this this other sort of like weird little sub narrative that's happening and there's a really good um so I was a writer I really love, um, Bennett Sims, who I went to college with. Uh, he's this really tremendous. Have you read his work? Or I you? haven't. Um, so he had a novel come out a couple of years ago called uh, Questionable Shape with $2 Radio. And then he just had a, a story collection come out this also this this past fall um, called White Dialogues, also with $2 Radio. And I've been waiting for White Dialogues to be a book for so long because his short stories are I mean, his novel is amazing also, but his short stories are like my absolute favorite. And he has this really tremendous story that was published in electric literature that is told in the form of a lecture about, um, I think it's Vertigo. It's like some Hitchcock film. And the, 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 the protagonist is making this argument that the sort of the, the, the there's like this, these, what he calls white dialogue, the story is called white dialogues. There's these like the extras are talking in the background and that you can sort of interpret, there's like this whole second film that's happening without the characters. Sorry, this is like a long explanation. Um, <laughs> that, that like is happening with the extras that are like speaking, right? And that there's like these sort of this other film happening in the background. Um, and it's a really amazing story. And also I feel like it kind of gets at this like fascinating thing about cinema. And it's like a short story about that phenomenon. Um, though the electric literature one actually... Um, had gifs like they put gifs up of huh. these moments so you it, actually there was a visual component in the online version of the story um but in any case the uh yeah so that, there's something about that quality of film that's really fascinating to me and i'm really interested in you know with inventories like an example of me trying to sort of like borrow from that structure as much as i possibly could with like prose and seeing how to right so you have these like two sort of competing for this foregrounded and backgrounded stories and how do you sort of make them work with each other and off of each other. Um, well, there's also the tension when you're doing a repetition. So repeated sexual encounters, which are sort of like a list. We sort of get lulled into an idea. We know what's yeah. going on. Yeah. But then the little details that keep changing behind that. Exactly. Make, make us feel like, oh, no, we definitely don't know what's going on. Exactly. And I feel like there's something about um, there's something really for, I've always loved 
like I feel this happens with video games. Like uh, there's this really there was this really amazing game a couple a couple of years ago called PT, and it was like this sort of short horror. You play, I don't know if you if you play. It was this short horror game, um, and you seemingly are simply cycling through this like creepy hallway over and over again, but things are slowly sort of changing around you. And I feel like that there's something about that like unsettling detail where like things are slowly moving, but you can't. It's like these, the details are changing very, very slightly, but at, at some point you figure out the pattern of like what's happening. You figure out the pattern of what's happening and then suddenly it, it creates this like anxiety and it's like a horror game or this like what is happening or suddenly you're like painted into a new element of the story. Um, so yeah, so I'm just like fascinated by this sort of structural stuff and I feel like the list, the list work is me just like trying to do that. Yeah. Um, well, let, I, I want to pivot to something that's central to the collection that we haven't yet touched on, which oh, okay. is which is bodies. Uh, um, <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> the title of the collection, "Her Body and Other Parties," promises and delivers on the the idea of of engaging with bodies in in nearly every story. Um, paradoxically, in the story, real women have bodies. We engage with the erasure and invisibility of women, but throughout much of the collection, we get stories that are very much rooted in the physical. Um, the embodiment of sexual experience, lots of sexual fluids and secretions, lots of swollen, engorged, and aroused <laughs> organs, male and female, <laughs> plots driven by urges and desires. And you talked once about um, the books of Nicholas Baker, Vox and House of Holes, and, and Philip Roth's Sabbath Theater. And it was hard for you to think of women writers who wrote sex that way, sex that is explicit, potentially uncomfortable or disturbing, and that that isn't being labeled or dismissed as erotica or mm -hmm. romance um, because it's written by a woman mm -hmm. um, and that you wanted to bring that into your story. So mm -hmm. can you talk about the considerations and desires with regards to sex writing and um, the writing of bodies in with this sort of ethical underpinning or this aesthetic underpinning? Right, right, right. Yeah. So um, yeah. So, so Nicholson Baker is one of my favorite. I just love him. Um, and you know his his sex writing is is probably one of the only examples of like straight white dudes writing sex that I actually look like, and I I feel there's something very like generous and tender about the way he writes sex that I I don't feel that way with like Philip Roth like I, I you know Philip Roth I, I won't go I won't go too much into it but I, I do feel like there's a sort of contempt um, at the core of of I mean Sabbath Theater is like an interesting book but and there is like a woman with sort of sexual agency in that book which is a you know but but I feel like when I read it. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. There's something just very disturbing about his the way he writes sex that I just I don't um, love. But um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, I I just really was really interested in. You know, I feel like like every person whose body is sort of the center of um, various intersections of oppression, which sounds so like clinical. But you know, like I'm a fat woman. I'm queer. Like I'm I'm sort of a mixed ethnic background and like am sort of white presenting-ish, but also not white exactly. And there's like this sort of, um, I feel like I, I think about bodies a lot and I think about like my own sort of position and role in it. And like the fact that like, I feel like there's this very sort of um, privileged, specifically sort of male perspective of like the pure intellect. Like, oh, you are just a mind. And it's like, no one is just a mind. Like brains are in bodies. There's no such thing as a brain in a jar. Like, you know, you are filtered, your experiences, your life, your thoughts, your, 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 everything you think is filtered through your body. And I think people like, sort of, I think a lot of times, like, especially like straight white men think of themselves as like this sort of default, like we're just like this pure glass vessels and like, did they just bear? But it's like, no, 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 like you still are, you, you, you know, you are still the filter for that, right? Um, 
and so, yeah, I was just really sort of hungry for, for certain kinds of narratives that I wasn't getting. Like I read Nicholson Baker and I loved him and I was like, I just wish I was reading more women that were writing this way. Um, and there certainly are some, um, you know, like, I mean, there are, there are, you know, Alyssa Nutting is a really good example. Um, I know like Al- someone was just telling me about Ali Smith, who actually I have not read, um, but I'm really excited too. I was saying that Ali Smith's the writer who does this. You know, there are some certainly, um, but but I just was thinking about, you know, sort of like these writers, like relative profiles compared to like someone like Philip Roth. And I was like, hmm, interesting. You know, again, like what kind of stories do we value? Um, whose, bo- whose bodily stories do we value? Um you know, like what kinds of masturbation scenes do we value? What kinds of sex scenes do we value? Um, and, and I just, I don't know. And I just wanted to do it. And I was like, I guess if no one stops me, I'll just keep, I'll just keep going, you know? And so I, you know, I wrote inventory. I remember writing inventory and, and being like, can I do this? Like, can I write a story that is like literally entirely sex scenes? Um, I, yeah, I guess I can. And somebody will publish it. And, and, and John published it. And then I was like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so I don't know. It's just like a thing that really interests me. And I think I just really wanted, um, I wanted that to be able to occupy that space because I'm a person who thinks about those things. So, like, why would I not? Yeah. Like, why would I not do that? Um, well, you, you, this is a total aside, but I just have to ask this because I can't remember entirely what you said. But you tweeted, I think, yesterday, you were just at the Tin House Winter Writers Workshop, some writing advice from Dorothy Allison that had to do with <laughs> masturbation. So what was that? Yes. Oh, my God. God bless Dorothy Allison. I love her so much. She was talking. Basically, she was saying that it's easier to write if you like learn how to masturbate, um, which I think is sort of a beautiful idea. And I think, you know, has a lot to do with like, well, actually, I think it's like half like sort of self-care, <laughs> you know, just like taking care of yourself in that way. But also this idea of like, you know, writing is about sort of is sort of about sort of pursuing what you want, right? And like what's sort of inside of you. And I feel like, you know, in that way that like masturbation is about learning like what your body needs and what your body wants and like what brings you pleasure and what makes you happy and like what gets you to where you want to go. And I feel like those things are actually incredibly similar. And I had just never thought of it that way. And then she said it and I just like cracked up and I was like, God, that's so smart. <laughs> like, I love that so much. Um, yeah. So I, I do, you know, I feel like there's something very uh, interesting and important. And also just the idea that like women's bodies and secretions and menstruation and childbirth and sex are things that are like worthy of litter and queer sex are like worthy of literary attention they're worthy of you know beautiful sentences and they're worthy of like you know good book good reviews and they're worthy of prizes like those things are really important um it's not just like you know dudes like being like you know like (laughs) you know like 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 there's like other things that are worthy of that kind of attention and that that's really important to me and i'm really grateful that like i was able to write a book that then got the kind of attention that i think I was like, good, I'm glad that you think that queer sex is worthy of attention and that women's bodies are worthy of that kind of attention. Well, and you mentioned also body size. So this book deals yeah. with the embodiment of, of different sexual orientations, but it also deals with body size. So we have um, the ghosts of girls who are literally sewn into prom dresses in one story. And then we have Eight Bites, which centers around a character's bariatric surgery to become skinnier, but how the remove fat takes on a haunted life of its own. You've also written some really, I, I think, incredible essays on the topic, perhaps uh, most notably The Trash Heap is Spoken, which I, I hope people will go s- seek out. Uh, can, can you talk about Marjorie, the trash heap <laughs> on Fraggle Rock, and how you use this character to explore large women in this piece, and in a, in a greater sense, also how you use that to explore it in the collection? Yeah, so, you know, I'm one of those, I've been... So I'm a really slow essay writer. I can write short stories relatively quickly, but essays take me five times as long. I write like roughly one essay a year. Um, and 
I had been trying to write an essay about fatness for a really long time. It's the thing I think about a lot. I'm a fat woman. Like, it's something that's very interesting to me. And I had started a lot of things, and none of them were satisfying. None of them I liked. They all felt sort of saccharine and sort of obvious. And, you know, I feel like I, I feel like a lot of what I read about fatness is very just like, rah, rah, you go, girl, you know, and which is like, I'm super into that. That's also great. But I feel like fat writing, there's a kind of dimensionality that I wanted to fat writing, which I think is happening. I think writers like Lindy West, Roxane Gay, like there are people who are writing about fatness in ways that are super interesting. Um, but, you know, I, I just wasn't, I, I wasn't finding really what I wanted. And I was really struggling to write this essay. And it took me writing eight bites to kind of Oftentimes, like I, I'll write a fictional a fiction story, and then it sort of gets me to the other side, and then I'm able to write an essay. So it was something about writing eight bites, where you know I had had the permission to like do the be the be fantastical and just sort of like make stuff up and just sort of you know be a fiction writer. Um, gave me permission and space to then think about bodies in a way that was you know had this sort of essayistic quality. But I still sort of you know engage various fictional characters in this essay, including so Marjorie the Trash Heap from Fraggle Rock, um, which actually was like I was. I forget why, but I was watching an, a clip of Fraggle Rock on YouTube, and I saw Marjorie, who I hadn't thought about in a really long time, and I was like, oh, my God. I was like, she's, like, this beautiful, like, obese character that is, like, noble and wise and funny and sassy and, like, sings these, like, really bluesy, fun songs and is just, like, badass and, like, has these, like, cat-eyed glasses on a lornette and is, like, just... <sighs> amazing in like every way and I had just never I, I just had never thought about it that way and then I was thinking about like Ursula who's like another fictional character who um I'm really interested in sort of her portrayal and, you know and it's funny because like I mean this happened after the essay came out but like recently Disney did some like new promotional stuff um I think at the parks and like they made like a basically a skinny version of Ursula like they made Ursula skinny um and it's like it's like <laughs> why would you do that like literally yeah. like part and so I sort of wrote about like using these fictional characters thinking about like fat excellence like what it means because you know we think of you know fatness is often used as this sort of shorthand for like laziness and stupidity and you know it's it's like people cannot escape their bodies like you know um Actually, literally before I got here, I was reading an essay in the in the car over. Uh, someone written about like fat characters in video games, and they were talking about like you know some fat character who like it was like a villain who was fat, and then like when they when when she, if you killed her successfully, she would like vomit and then like, be crushed beneath like a like a wheelie cart or like a like a motor scooter or whatever. Um, and there's like sort of the history of like fat characters in video games, um, and which was like fascinating. And right, so like I feel like uh, there's something about. Uh, you know, I was just really interested in sort of thinking about, like, what are examples of, like, fictional characters that reflect, like, a different sort of way of thinking about fat bodies? And I also sort of talk about, like, um, you know, th thinking about space-taking is also part of it, like, this political act. So, like, you know, we, we talk about things like manspreading, right, which is, like, men taking up, like, physical space that they don't need to just because because um, they feel entitled to the space and how women sort of shrink themselves and kind of pull into themselves and don't want to take up that space. And it's, like, fatness is that, but, like, not even, like, an act of, like, making your body sort of, like, tightening up or whatever but it actually like your body is fat like you are taking up like you are displacing more space than a non-fat person and that is like a political act in its own way um we have this great line unapologetic fat women embrace the philosophy of displacement this is not just fatness of the body it is fatness of the mind yeah i love that yeah yeah i mean i think i i really it was it was really you know i'm one of those people who like i i I like I, I writing helps me figure out my own thoughts, um, which is why I like writing essays. Like it, it helps me kind of organize my thoughts. But 
you know, and so I feel like when I was, as I was writing that essay, I could feel sort of all this stuff kind of falling into place that I, I've been thinking about a lot that suddenly I had this like architecture to kind of stick it into. Um, yeah. And I just, the idea of like the fat mind. And I mean, even in that, um, uh, you know, even in that also same essay, I talk about how like there was this um, quote in the Shirley Jackson biography that I was talking about earlier. It was like a quote from a friend of Shirley Jackson's and, you know, Shirley Jackson's like a fat woman. And like the quote was so awful because it was like this woman being like oh yes like she was so fat and she would like sit on the couch and take up half the couch but she was so brilliant and charming and funny like what how are those things in any way related to each other like, like yeah. she was brilliant and charming and funny and they're like but also she was fat but like don't worry she was brilliant and charming and funny and I, you know and I feel like that sort of unthinking like that just sort of this reflect like we have this really sort of like demented relationship with like bodies and food and weight and, and i feel like that's like a, a very basic reflection of that well you're just dis that disconnect there you you, you talk about an uh, exercise that you do of imagining the shows that you really love but the main character being fat instead mm -hmm. of skinny mm -hmm. which points to all the roles that you would that people never imagine a fat person could inhabit in a show so like what are some of those things that you never see that makes you have to imagine uh uh transforming a skinnier character into a larger character i mean i think it's partially the fact that we don't like you you like if a character is fat very often a it's like use a sort of a shorthand for some quality of them so like they're stupid again they're lazy so they're like, not complex right they're, they're very simple or like you know it's funny so we um we do this thing in my house, my wife and I do this thing called Nostalgia Movie Night where we have friends over twice a month and we watch movies from like our own childhoods. Um, and, you know, and it's delightful in many ways, but the, the fat phobia, among other many, like races, among a lot of other problems with like films of the 90s, the fat phobia is, the sort of fat panic is like very, very intense. And like we, we recently rewatched a movie I had not seen in a long time, which was... Um, uh, now and then um and it was one of those things where like each care each girl in this group gets this like really complicated intense like backstory about this like summer that like changed their lives and like all this stuff happening to them except for the fat girl the fat girl has no interiority she has no um we don't see her like going through any she's just sort of like tagging along and like doing things and and she just has it's like she's not even a character she's right so she's the fat girl and Right, it sort of uses, again, it uses the shorthand, right, where it's like the sort of, so that's like really flat character where it's like the, all you need to know about them is they're fat and that tells you everything you need to know about their personality. Yeah. You never see fat people as sexual or romantic leads. You never see um, characters where they're fat and that's, and there's, that's, there's, it's not commented upon, right? It's just like, this is a character who happens to be fat and she just is, yeah. you know, and that's just like part of who she is and that's fine. Um and so, yeah, that really, I find it very frustrating. And so, yeah, so I sort of engage. I'm like just imagining like shows that I like that I, you know, what if this character was fat or chubby or whatever? Like what if she just looked different than she was? She wasn't skinny in the same way that you might say like, why are they straight? Why are they white? Why are they, you know what I mean? Like there's, I mean, that you could do a lot of different things, but um, yeah, I don't know. It just makes me really, and it's hard, you know, or like I remember like I watched um, Jessica Jones, which I loved and literally in the first 10 minutes of that show first episode she's like spying I feel she's like she's like spying she's like looking for somebody she's like on a on a fire escape and she's like looking and there's just, she just looks into um a window of a woman's apartment this woman is like on a treadmill eating a cheeseburger like a fat woman on a treadmill messily eating a cheeseburger and the thing is that and then she's like makes some like disparaging comment and then sort of moves on and it's like okay so that's like 
here we have a feminist show, like a show that like is about like entitlement and and you know patriarchy. You have the scene where it isn't even about her personality because the fact that like a woman, a fat woman, is on a treadmill eating a cheeseburger, like no one fucking does that. No one is on a treadmill messily eating a, a McDonald's cheeseburger. That is ridiculous. <laughs> that is not a thing that happens in real life. But for the sh- so it wasn't even about like her own like she's fat phobic. It's like the show's lens is fat phobic, right? And it's like we can't imagine this character. You can't even just be like a woman, just like you could have been just been like a woman like briskly running on a treadmill, you know? I run treadmills. Like yeah. I assure you I'm not shoving a cheeseburger into my face while I'm doing it. <laughs> I have like a water bottle, like every person who's running on a treadmill. And so like it's just one of those things where it's like, and it was, and it was a gag. It was a throwaway gag. It had literally zero bearing on anything else in the show, and they just moved on. And I was like, "Are you joking? Like, are you are you kidding me?" Um, or like right now, like I've been watching Brooklyn Nine Nine. I, I had not seen it, and I was catching up, and I was looking for a new show, and someone recommended it, and I love it. It's super funny. It is so fat phobic. Like the fat kids in that show are just boorish, stupid, lazy, disgusting. They're eating constantly and they're just dumb as rocks, you know, and there's like one character who the trauma of his past is that he was fat once and we constantly get these like humiliating, you know, sort of um, throwback, uh, uh, what do you call it? Flashbacks where he's like in a fat suit and like, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, like what is the point of this? What do you, like, you know, and I think it's a problem of, like, you don't have any, clearly you don't have any fat writers, which also is, like, its own thing, right? So you have this, like, like I don't know, sorry. <laughs> like, you've, like, hit my, like, passion play. I'm, like, what? No, this you, is... People can't see, but I'm, like, waving my arms wildly around right now. <laughs> um, so, like, recently there was this huge controversy with the Midwest Writers Workshop. Did you, did have you heard about this? So the, um, the Midwest Writers Workshop is this, like, they run this, like, workshop in the Midwest and there was this really amazing writer Sarah Howell who like is this brilliant writer who was also fat and she was I don't remember exactly I I it's been a minute since I've read about the details. Basically, like, they were going to elect her to the board, and a board member said, she's fat. We don't want her representing us because it's wow. disgusting how fat she is. And a person with a conscience on the board told Sarah, was like, this is happening and this is really disturbing. And so it was this huge thing. People wrote about it. It was just this really fucked up situation. They eventually, like, they voted to put, they're like, no, no, we're going to put her on the board. Don't worry about it. And then, and the, the, they, they, the, the guy who, like, ran apologized. And then three days later, they fired the woman who had, who had, like, said the thing. Who had, like, they were like, you basically, like, you ratted us out. And they fired her. Um, or, like, a few years ago, there was an article um, in, like, I think Entertainment Weekly or something about, um, uh, uh, debut books that get like huge advances. So like a debut book from an unknown author who gets like a, that gets like a million dollar advance. And there was this throwaway quote from an editor from a major publishing house where she was sort of talking about, I think it was Sweet Bitter or there was, it was some book that they had gotten a really huge advance. And she was like, she was like, well, yes, you know, it helps that she's like young and pretty. Um, but even if she'd been 500 pounds and really hard to look at, we probably would have given her the same offer. And again, just this like throwaway line as if it's like, and then like, you know, Mallory Orberg with this like beautiful response in the toast um, where she was sort of like, you know, people who are 500 pounds, like they write and they write tremendous and valuable things. And like the idea that like that is just, it's like this person can't imagine a person who's 500 pounds. And then also they can't imagine this person would like write anything worth yeah. reading. Like, and the fact that just like, again, it's like a throwaway line. It's like, it's like, it shows, I think how that sort of that level of like how demented that conversation is where there's just this, um, it's just so... And it, and it makes you crazy because also it's like, it's like with, you know, with TV and film, it's like you're, you know, there's like this visual element, which like, it still doesn't make any sense, but there's this visual element. But then with writing, it's like, 
Well, that's that's what's so amazing about Roxane Gay, who's writing about weight. Yeah. Also, um, explicitly touring about it, and receiving over and over again these um, offensive. This offensive scenarios keep happening yeah. to her yeah. by people who are purportedly yeah. interested in interviewing her about her book about yes. her body size. Yeah. So it's like you would think that would be the last person yeah. who would, um, yeah. I mean, maybe naively think that would be the last person who would who would do that to Roxane Gay, right. and yet we keep seeing this happening. Yeah. Repeatedly. Yeah, I would never I would never suggest that it's like the last prejudice because it definitely is not the last prejudice by any means, but it is definitely a sort of a a pocket of oppression that is extremely unexamined. And yeah. I feel like we have not had a cultural reckoning or a cultural moment. Um I feel like we're still sort of engaging this like mass delusion about about fatness, about in terms of like how we talk about fatness and like how we treat fat people. Um and you know, and there's like whole other dimensions to it. There's like you know, medicine. Right. I mean, which is like its own thing, like how fat people don't get the proper health care because like, you know, I mean, I could, I could go on for like 10. I could just talk about this for yeah. eight hours. But like, um, yeah, I feel like we just haven't had we haven't had um, a reckoning in a way like like I'm trying to imagine like what would a Me Too movement about fatness look like? Um, and I, I don't really know what it would look like. And I don't know if when when or if we'll have that movement. But I'm really interested in it. But um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> Th- thank you for sharing. Yeah, sorry. No, like, <laughs> it's like really, I did not realize that was going to be like a, a lanced boil. <laughs> you have, to, to pivot a little bit, you have one reviewer that called the collection or said that the collection queered reality. And it's true that your your female protagonists are attracted to both women and men, some of them to both. The stories move fluidly between heterosexual and queer relationships. Um, without belaboring it, I'll say like when you say like, wouldn't it be nice to have a fat character and it's not drawn attention to, I feel like you, it's not belabored in the book. It's just happening in the book. I did wonder if, if this comes from a, a sense of absence in what you've seen represented in literature, but it also made me think that this collection didn't just queer reality, which I do think it does, but that in a way it is asserting that reality itself is pretty queer, hmm. um, both in the broader and narrower senses of the word queer, that if we can get behind or beyond the narrators, narrators demand at the beginning of your book to read the voices in a certain way, that there's a, lo- a lot less stability in what we might see. Well, I mean, I feel like it's sort of that quality of, um, I guess, liminality, which is a word that I use like probably too much, because uh, I feel like I'm really interested in in that space, um, you know, my characters, like I wanted to write a, a, a book where characters were queer and it wasn't like a thing, you know, which is not to say that like, you know, obviously like coming out stories and stories where, where queerness or questions of sexuality are important is are obviously also very important and will always be important. Um, but I was really, that was not what I was interested in writing. I really wanted to just talk about what it was like to just sort of be like, these are desires that I have and they are just what they are and I'm not really going to have to like comment on them because they just, they are, you know, and sometimes they'll work, sometimes they won't. Um, the relationships themselves are more important than like that sort of angst or anxiety. Um, And yeah, I feel like that's sort of that sense of liminality. um, That's really important to me. Uh, It's funny. I, you know, I love, I love the word queer. I use the word, I occasionally find myself using the word queer in the very old fashioned sense. Like, Oh, what a queer sensation or like what a queer. And and it's, I kind of wish I like want it to come back (laughs) because I feel like it, it actually gets at this very like interesting sort of space that like those, that those, the meanings of those words kind of overlap in this really interesting way. Um, well, like when you know, that I think is I don't know I think is fascinating. So well, you mentioned earlier your your nightmare story in an artist residency, which I I was preparing for this 
interview in an artist residency and reading this artist residency mm. story. So that was <laughs> a, a doubly so. But you do, um, one of the uh, characters brings up Victor Slavsky's uh, idea of defamiliarization, mm-hmm. which does feel like it's partly connected yeah. to that older idea of, of queer. Yeah. Um, and I was hoping you could read this section that the way oh, things yeah. that are very commonplace can all of a sudden take on a strangeness. Yeah. I was reminded for the umpteenth time of Victor Schlotsky's idea of defamiliarization, of zooming in so close to something and observing it so, so slowly that it begins to warp and change and acquire new meaning. When I'd first begun to experience this phenomenon, I'd been too young to understand what it was, certainly too young to consult a reference book. The first time I lay down on the floor examining the metal and rubber foot of our family refrigerator wreathed in dust and human hair, and from this reference point all other objects began to change. The foot, instead of being insignificant, one of four, etc., suddenly became everything, a stoic little house at the base of a large mountain, from one which could see a tiny curl of smoke and glinting illuminated windows, a home from which a hero would emerge eventually." Every nick on the foot was a balcony or a door. The deritis beneath the fridge became a wrecked, ravaged landscape, the expanse of kitchen tile a rambling kingdom, waiting for salvation. This was how my mother found me, staring at the foot of the refrigerator, so intensely my eyes were slightly crossed, my body curled up, my lips moving almost imperceptibly. We've been listening to Carmen Maria Machado read from Her Body and Other Parties. So while we're on the topic of of strange, I just wanted to briefly mention the ways in which you're enamored with unusual forms. So for Granta, you were asked to pick the best book of 1998, and you picked Jeff Ryman's hyperlink novel, 253. And you have a piece in the Los Angeles Review of Books called Why Alice Monroe Should Play Gone Home, <laughs> Gone Home being a video game that you call the best story of the past summer. And you also have a hyperlink story, um, the morals of the stories that comes with a warning about where the various links might lead. So could you could you just briefly touch on maybe some of these other forms that we see um, you excited about? Yeah. Um, so 253 is really interesting to me, which I also write about in the in the uh, um in the LA Review or LA Review of Books essay. So, so sorry, I should back up. So Gone Home is this video game that came out a couple of years ago, um, which is basically sort of a click and point um, game uh, where you are um, a, a college student returned. It's like the 90s. You've returned home from being abroad. You go to the house where your parents and your sister live, the house they've moved to since you left for college, um, and nobody is home. And you're sort of trying to figure out like where everybody is. And you sort of move through the house in this way, clicking on sort of objects and artifacts and trying to sort of discern the narrative from it um and it was a tremendous accomplishment i absolutely love it i I couldn't i mean i could talk about that for another eight hours right um but i was really interested because i don't have the quote in front of me but there was a really great quote about alice monroe about how like being in a uh, writing a story sort of like being in a house and there's like sort of elements of the house that you um sort of move through right and and this was like actually a literal house where like you you know that you as a character are like moving through um and and, you know, and in many ways, like the way even though it was basically an interactive novel. Right. And like just the order of information you got by picking up 
certain objects in certain in a certain order, um, which was more or less up to you. Uh, and then with two two fifty three, which is right, this Jeff Ryman novel, um, which is about a, a train, uh, a fictionalized um, crash in the tube in London, um, which he wrote. Um, and, it, and it's set on the date when he discovered a friend of his who had AIDS was, was about to die. And um, and so the original version of the novel was a hyperlink novel, which I, I had not – I read the print version first. But um, So the hyperlink version, it's like just the sort of laid out like this train and each section – and there's 253 passengers on the train – and each section is a 253-word description of, like, the exterior and interior of these people who are on this train in the moments before, the seven minutes before it crashes. Um, wow. So when you look at the hyperlink novel, you know, it's, like, they're sort of visually laid out. And you can just click on various – you can just sort of click through sort of however you want. Um, and then when you read the print version, you are just sort of going from front to back. And so you you don't really have a cho- – I mean, I guess you could skip around theoretically. But, like, you just – it's sort of meant to just read straight through. And the effect is really different. Um, it's like weirdly different because it, it's sort of this more like almost like a, this um, it kind of gathers steam no pun intended in this like really intense way and it's going faster and faster and sort of moving through it in this really interesting way and as you get closer to the back of the train reality starts to bend so like you know you start off with like just these like people just going to work or people sort of doing various things and then toward the end you get like you get like a character you get like um, Anne Frank who in this version of the story, like, has survived and is, like, living in London and, and is just, like, on the back of the train. And, like, are also other sort of, like, weird characters and figures that appear. Um, and it's really beautiful in the way that it's sort of laid out. And so, like, when I look at this book, like, I mean, obviously the, the hyperlink version is fascinating to me, but I feel like the print version, for me, the print version is, like, a little more satisfying and I sort of prefer it. Um, you know, with Gone Home, I was really interested in how the fact that, like, the way that you can pick objects and what you can sort of leave behind or miss could change the way that you read the story. Similarly, with the hyperlink version, version of 253 where like if you miss certain things like you would just not read it in quite the same way um and that idea of like how the reader is sort of actually an active part of that process um well well, speaking of houses and houses as stories your your next book is house of indiana mm -hmm. right coming out next year Mm -hmm. can can you talk a little bit about it you you have you've called it an experimental memoir yes and i would love to hear maybe (laughs) since we're talking about experiments and you've you've mentioned a variety of things you're interested in can you can you talk a little bit about what we might expect? Yeah, so it's a memoir about um, abuse and same-sex relationships, and it sort of uses um, this this house and as a sort of a, a metaphor. I'm like very interested in haunted houses right now. This is just like a thing that I'm on a on a real kick about houses and spaces like that right now. Um, so yeah, so I sort of use various like genre tropes and ideas, including that of the house and the haunted house, to sort of examine sort of facets of this relationship. And I do a lot of other stuff. I like do a close reading of the Ingrid Bergman film Gaslight, and I, I do a lot of different stuff. Um, but yeah, so I, I think I was just sort of trying to figure out. Uh, so yeah, so so it, it just sort of uses the house as the metaphor. So it is, this is just like a metaphor that, for some reason, is like sort of lodged in my brain, and I can't escape. And I've been really interested in. Well, I can't wait for that one. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on Between the Covers oh, today. Of course, it was my pleasure. Thank you. We are talking today to Carmen Maria Machado the author of Her Body and Other Parties from Grey Wolf Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm.
More of Carmen Maria Machado's work can be found at CarmenMariaMachado.com, as well as the bonus material, Miss Laura's School for Esquire Men, and How I Should Have Known Trump Would Be Elected President at the Between the Covers Patreon page at patreon.com slash between the covers. And finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog et Sa Petite Amie, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's Trove of Ukulele Covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. This is Ursula K. Le Guin, and you are listening to KBU, the cheerful voice of social conscience, KBOO in Portland.